Chapter Four of The Boy Scout and Other Stories for Boys by Richard Harding Davis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four Blood Will Tell, Part Two. Reader's Note According to the Oxford English Dictionary, filibuster as used in this story means a member of an American band of adventurers who incited revolution in various Latin American states in the mid-nineteenth century. Generally, a person who engages in unauthorized warfare against a foreign state. Turning his back, David started with great dignity to walk away. It was a short walk. Something hit him below the ear, and he found himself curling up comfortably on the ties. He had a strong desire to sleep, but was conscious that a bed on a railroad track, on account of trains wanting to pass, was unsafe. This doubt did not long disturb him. His head rolled against the steel rail, his limbs relaxed. From a great distance, and in a strange sing-song, he heard the voice of the barkeeper saying, Nine, ten, and out. When David came to his senses, his head was resting on a coil of rope. In his ears was the steady throb of an engine, and in his eyes the glare of a lantern. The lantern was held by a pleasant-faced youth in a golf cap, who was smiling sympathetically. David rose on his elbow and gazed wildly about him. He was in the bow of the ocean-going tug and he saw that from where he lay in the bow to her stern her decks were packed with men. She was steaming swiftly down a broad river. On either side the gray light that comes before the dawn showed low banks studded with stunted palmettos. Close ahead David heard the roar of the surf. "'Sorry to disturb you,' said the youth in the golf cap, but we drop the pilot in a few minutes, and you're going with him." David moved his aching head gingerly, and was conscious of a bump as large as a tennis ball behind his right ear. "'What happened to me?' he demanded. "'You were sort of kidnapped, I guess,' laughed the young man. "'It was a raw deal, but they couldn't take any chances. The pilot will land you at Okra Point. You can hire a rig there to take you to the railroad." "'But why?' demanded David indignantly. "'Why was I kidnapped? What had I done? Who were those men who—' From the pilot-house there was a sharp jangle of bells to the engine-room, and the speed of the tug slackened. "'Come on,' commanded the young man briskly. "'The pilot's going ashore. Here's your grip. Here's your hat. The ladder's on the port side. Look where you're stepping. We can't show any lights, and it's dark as— But even as he spoke, like a flash of powder, as swiftly as one throws an electric switch, as blindingly as a train leaps from the tunnel into the glaring sun, the darkness vanished, and the tug was swept by the fierce, blatant radiance of a searchlight. It was met by shrieks from two hundred throats, by screams, oaths, prayers, by the sharp jangling of bells, by the blind rush of many men scurrying like rats for a hole to hide in, 
by the ringing orders of one man. Above the tumult this one voice rose like the warning strokes of a fire-gong, and looking up to the pilot-house from whence the voice came, David saw the barkeeper still in his shirt-sleeves and with his derby hat pushed back behind his ears, with one hand clutching the telegraph to the engine-room, with the other holding the spoke of the wheel. David felt the tug, like a hunter taking a fence, rise in a great leap. Her bow sank and rose, tossing the water from her in black, oily waves. The smoke poured from her funnel. From below her engine sobbed and quivered, and like a hound freed from a leash she raced for the open sea. But swiftly as she fled, as a thief is held in the circle of a policeman's bull's-eye, the shaft of light followed and exposed her and held her in its grip. The youth in the golf-cap was clutching David by the arm. With his free hand he pointed down the shaft of light. So great was the tumult that, to be heard, he brought his lips close to David's ear. "'That's the revenue-cutter!' he shouted. "'She's been laying for us for three weeks, and now,' he shrieked exultingly, "'the old man's going to give her a race for it.' From excitement, from cold, from alarm, David's nerves were getting beyond his control. But, but how, he demanded, how do I get ashore? You don't. When he drops the pilot, don't I— How can he drop the pilot, yelled the youth. The pilot's got to stick by the boat, and so have you. David clutched the young man and swung him so that they stood face to face. Stick by what boat, yelled David. Who are these men? Who are you? What boat is this? In the glare of the searchlight, David saw the eyes of the youth staring at him as though he feared he were in the clutch of a madman. Wrenching himself free, the youth pointed at the pilot-house. Above it, on a blue board in letters of gold leaf a foot high, was the name of the tug. As David read it, his breath left him. A finger of ice passed slowly down his spine. The name he read was The Three Friends. The three friends, shrieked David. She's a filibuster. She's a pirate. Where are we going? To Cuba. David emitted a howl of anguish, rage, and protest. What for, he shrieked. The young man regarded him coldly. To pick bananas, he said. I won't go to Cuba, shouted David. I've got to work. I'm paid to sell machinery. I demand to be put ashore. I'll lose my job if I'm not put ashore. I'll sue you. I'll have the law. But David found himself suddenly upon his knees. His first thought was that the ship had struck a rock, and then that she was bumping herself over a succession of coral reefs. She dipped, dived, reared, and plunged. Like a hooked fish she flung herself in the air, quivering from bow to stern. No longer was David of a mind to sue the filibusters if they did not put him ashore. If only they had put him ashore, in gratitude he would have crawled on his knees. What followed was of no interest to David, nor to many of the filibusters, nor to any of the Cuban patriots. Their groans of self-pity, 
their prayers and curses in eloquent Spanish, rose high above the crash of broken crockery and the pounding of the waves. Even when the searchlight gave way to a brilliant sunlight, the circumstance was unobserved by David. Nor was he concerned in the tidings brought forward by the youth in the golf cap, who raced the slippery decks and vaulted the prostrate forms as sure-footedly as a hurdler on a cinder-track. To David, in whom he seemed to think he had found a congenial spirit, he shouted joyfully, "'She's fired two blanks at us!' he cried and now she's firing cannon-balls. "'Thank God!' whispered David. "'Perhaps she'll sink us.' But the three friends showed her heels to the revenue-cutter, and, so far as David knew, hours passed into days and days into weeks. It was like those nightmares in which, in a minute, one is whirled through centuries of fear and torment. Sometimes, regardless of nausea, of his aching head, of the hard deck, of the waves that splashed and smothered him, David fell into broken slumber. Sometimes he woke to a dull consciousness of his position. At such moments he added to his misery by speculating upon the other misfortunes that might have befallen him on shore. Emily, he decided, had given him up for lost and married probably a navy officer in command of a battleship. Burdett and Sons had cast him off forever. Possibly his disappearance had caused them to suspect him. Even now they might be regarding him as a defaulter, as a fugitive from justice. His accounts, no doubt, were being carefully overhauled. In actual time, two days and two nights had passed. To David it seemed many ages. On the third day he crawled to the stern, where there seemed less motion, and finding a boat's cushion, threw it in the lee scupper and fell upon it. From time to time the youth in the golf cap had brought him food and drink, and he now appeared from the cook's galley, bearing a bowl of smoking soup. David considered it a doubtful attention. But he said, "'You're very kind.' How did a fellow like you come to mix up with these pirates?" The youth laughed good-naturedly. "'They're not pirates. They're patriots,' he said. "'And I'm not mixed up with them. My name is Henry Carr, and I'm a guest of Jimmy Doyle, the captain.' "'The barkeeper with the derby hat?' said David. "'He's not a barkeeper. He's a teetotaler,' Carr corrected. "'And he's the greatest filibuster alive. He knows these waters as you know Broadway, and he's the salt of the earth. I did him a favor once, sort of mouse-helping-the-lion idea. Just through dumb luck I found out about this expedition. The government agents in New York found out I'd found out and sent for me to tell. But I didn't, and I didn't write the story either. Doyle heard about that, so he asked me to come as his guest and he's promised that after he's landed the expedition and the arms i can write as much about it as i darn please then you're a reporter said david i'm what we call a cub reporter laughed carr you see i've always dreamed of being a war correspondent the men in the office say i dream too much they're always guying me about it 
But haven't you noticed it's the ones who dream who find their dreams come true? Now, this isn't real war, but it's a near war, and when the real thing breaks loose, I can tell the managing editor I served as a war correspondent in the Cuban-Spanish campaign, and he may give me a real job. And you like this? groaned David. I wouldn't if I were as sick as you are, said Carr, but I've a stomach like a Harlem goat. He stooped and lowered his voice. Now, here are two fake filibusters, he whispered, the men you read about in the newspapers. If a man's a real filibuster, nobody knows it. Coming toward them was the tall man who had knocked David out, and the little one who had wanted to tie him to a tree. All they ask, whispered Carr, is money and advertisement. If they knew I was a reporter, they'd eat out of my hand. The tall man calls himself Lighthouse Harry. He once kept a lighthouse on the Florida coast, and that's as near to the sea as he ever got. The other one is a daredevil, calling himself Colonel Beamish. He says he's an English officer and a soldier of fortune, and that he's been in eighteen battles. Jimmy says he's never been near enough to a battle to see the Red Cross flags on the base hospital. But they fooled these Cubans. The junta thinks they're great fighters, and it sent them down here to work the machine guns. But I'm afraid the only fighting they will do will be in the sporting columns and not in the ring. A half-dozen seasick Cubans were carrying a heavy oblong box. They dropped it not two yards from where David lay, and with a screwdriver Lighthouse Harry proceeded to open the lid. Carr explained to David that the three friends was approaching that part of the coast of Cuba on which she had arranged to land her expedition, and that in case she was surprised by one of the Spanish patrol boats she was preparing to defend herself. "'They've got an automatic gun in that crate,' said Carr, "'and they're going to assemble it. You'd better move. They'll be tramping all over you.' David shook his head feebly. I can't move, he protested. I wouldn't move if it would free Cuba. For several hours, with very languid interest, David watched Lighthouse Harry and Colonel Beamish screw a heavy tripod to the deck and balance above it a quick-firing one-pounder. They worked very slowly, and to David, watching them from the lee scupper, they appeared extremely unintelligent. I don't believe either of those thugs put an automatic gun together in his life," he whispered to Carr. I never did either, but I've put hundreds of automatic punches together, and I bet that gun won't work. What's wrong with it? said Carr. Before David could summon sufficient energy to answer, the attention of all on board was diverted, and by a single word. Whether the word is whispered apologetically by the smoking-room steward to those deep in bridge, or shrieked from the tops of a sinking ship, it never quite fails of its effect. A sweating stoker from the engine-room saw it first. "'Land!' he hailed. The seasick Cubans raised themselves and swung their hats. Their voices rose in a fierce chorus. "'Cuba Libra!' 
they yelled. The sun piercing the morning mists had uncovered a coastline broken with bays and inlets. Above it towered green hills, the peak of each topped by a squat blockhouse. In the valleys and watercourses, like columns of marble, rose the royal palms. You must look, Carr entreated David. It's just as it is in the pictures. Then I don't have to look, groaned David. The three friends was making for a point of land that curved like a sickle. On the inside of the sickle was Nipe Bay. On the opposite shore of that broad harbor, at the place of rendezvous, a little band of Cubans waited to receive the filibusters. The goal was in sight. The dreadful voyage was done. Joy and excitement thrilled the ship's company. Cuban patriots appeared in uniforms with Cuban flags pinned in the brims of their straw sombreros. From the hold came boxes of small-arm ammunition, of Mausers, rifles, machetes, and saddles. To protect the landing, a box of shells was placed in readiness beside the one-pounder. "'In two hours, if we have smooth water,' shouted Lighthouse Harry, "'we ought to get all of this on shore. And then all I ask,' he cried mightily, "'is for someone to kindly show me a Spaniard.' His heart's desire was instantly granted. He was shown not only one Spaniard, but several Spaniards. They were on the deck of one of the fastest gunboats of the Spanish Navy. Not a mile from the three friends, she sprang from the cover of a narrow inlet. She did not signal questions or extend courtesies. For her, the name of the ocean-going tug was sufficient introduction. Throwing ahead of her a solid shell, she raced in pursuit and as the three friends leaped to full speed there came from the gunboat the sharp dry crackle of mausers with an explosion of terrifying oaths lighthouse harry thrust a shell into the breech of the quick-firing gun without waiting to aim it he tugged at the trigger nothing happened he threw open the breech and gazed impotently at the base of the shell it was untouched the ship was ringing with cries of anger, of hate, with rat-like squeaks of fear. Above the heads of the filibusters a shell screamed and within a hundred feet splashed into a wave. From his mat in the lee scupper David groaned miserably. He was far removed from any of the greater emotions. "'It's no use,' he protested. "'They can't do. It's not connected.' "'What's not connected?' yelled Carr. He fell upon David. He half-lifted, half-dragged him to his feet. "'If you know what's wrong with that gun, you'll fix it! Fix it!' he shouted, or I'll—' David was not concerned with the vengeance Carr threatened, for on the instant a miracle had taken place. With the swift insidiousness of morphine, peace ran through his veins, soothed his racked body, his jangled nerves. The three friends had made the harbor, and was gliding through water flat as a pond. But David did not know why the change had come. He knew only that his soul and body were at rest, that the sun was shining, that he had passed through the valley of the shadow, 
and once more was a sane, sound young man. With a savage thrust of the shoulder he sent Lighthouse Harry sprawling from the gun. With swift, practiced fingers he fell upon its mechanism. He wrenched it apart. He lifted it, reset, readjusted it. Ignorant themselves, those about him saw that he understood, saw that his work was good. They raised a joyous, defiant cheer, but a shower of bullets drove them to cover, bullets that ripped the deck, splintered the superstructure, smashed the glass in the airports, like angry wasps sang in a continuous whining chorus. Intent only on the gun, David worked feverishly. He swung to the breech, locked it, and dragged it open, pulled on the trigger, and found it gave before his forefinger. He shouted with delight. I've got it working, he yelled. He turned to his audience, but his audience had fled. From beneath one of the lifeboats protruded the riding boots of Colonel Beamish. The tall form of Lighthouse Harry was doubled behind a water-butt. A shell splashed to port, a shell splashed to starboard. For an instant David stood staring wide-eyed at the greyhound of a boat that ate up the distance between them, at the jets of smoke and stabs of flame that sprang from her bow, at the figures crouched behind her gunwale, firing in volleys. To David it came suddenly, convincingly, that in a dream he had lived it all before, and something like raw poison stirred in David, something leaped to his throat and choked him, something rose in his brain and made him see scarlet. He felt, rather than saw, young Carr kneeling at the box of ammunition, and holding a shell toward him. He heard the click as the breech shut, felt the rubber tire of the brace give against the weight of his shoulder, down a long shining tube saw the pursuing gunboat, saw her again and many times disappear behind a flash of flame. A bullet gashed his forehead, a bullet passed deftly through his forearm, but he did not heed them. Confused with the thrashing of the engines, with the roar of the gun, he heard a strange voice shrieking unceasingly, Cuba Libra, it yelled, to hell with Spain! and he found that the voice was his own. The story lost nothing in the way Carr wrote it. And the best of it is, he exclaimed joyfully, it's true, for a Spanish gunboat had been crippled and forced to run herself aground by a tugboat manned by Cuban patriots and by a single gun served by one man, and that man an American. It was the first sea-fight of the war. Overnight a Cuban navy had been born, and into the limelight a cub reporter had projected a new hero, a ready-made, warranted-not-to-run, popular idol. They were seated in the pilot-house. Jimmy Doyle, Carr, and David, the patriots and their arms had been safely dumped upon the coast of Cuba, and the three friends was gliding swiftly and having caught the Florida Straits napping smoothly toward Key West. Carr had just finished reading aloud his account of the engagement. "'You will tell the story just as I have written it,' commanded the proud author. 
Your being south as a traveling salesman was only a blind. You came to volunteer for this expedition. Before you could explain your wish, you were mistaken for a Secret Service man and hustled on board. That was just where you wanted to be, and when the moment arrived, you took command of the ship and single-handed won the naval battle of Nipe Bay. Jimmy Doyle nodded his head approvingly. You certainly did, Dave, protested the great man. I seen you when you done it. At Key West, Carr filed his story, and while the hospital surgeons kept David there over one steamer to dress his wounds, his fame and features spread across the map of the United States. Burdett and Sons basked in reflected glory. Reporters besieged their office. At the Merchants Downtown Club, the businessmen of Lower Broadway tendered congratulations. Of course, it's a great surprise to us, Burdett and Sons would protest and wink heavily. Of course, when the boy asked to be sent south, we'd no idea he was planning to fight for Cuba, or we wouldn't have let him go, would we? Then again they would wink heavily. I suppose you know, they would say, that he's a direct descendant of General Hiram Green, who won the Battle of Trenton. What I say is, blood will tell. And then in a body every one in the club would move against the bar and exclaim, Here's to Cuba Libra! When the Olivet from Key West reached Tampa Bay, every Cuban in the Tampa cigar factories was at the dock. There were thousands of them, and all of the junta, in high hats, to read David an address of welcome. And when they saw him at the top of the gangplank, with his head in a bandage and his arm in a sling, like a mob of maniacs, they howled and surged toward him. But before they could reach their hero, the courteous junta forced them back and cleared a pathway for a young girl. She was travel-worn and pale. Her shirtwaist was disgracefully wrinkled. Her best hat was a wreck. No one on Broadway would have recognized her as Burdett and Sons' most immaculate and beautiful stenographer. She dug the shapeless hat into David's shoulder and clung to him. David, she sobbed, promise me you'll never, never do it again. End of chapter 4 Part 2